Matthew chapter 5. For about a year now, we have been working our way through the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, trying as best we can to uh, follow the events as they occur in chronological order. And uh, today we come to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I have not preached through the Sermon on the Mount for many years, but it influenced me very deeply when I was just a young man. I was about, I think, 18 years old when I was telling a man named Hollis Walter that I was going to teach my youth group through the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, have you ever read Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount? I said, no. He said, I'll send you one. And so he did. And I began, as that 18-year-old boy, I began reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition to the Sermon on the Mount and just pretty much copied his outlines and taught it to the youth group that I was teaching that summer. Uh, If you were to ask me to name the 10 books that have been most influential on my life and thinking, One of the books that I would mention is Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have not read this book in preparation for this series, but I'm confident that if you read this book after hearing me preach, you'll think I probably copied Lloyd-Jones. I... uh, I'm sure that the, the, his perspectives and his influence on the way that I think about these various issues has become such a part of me that I don't feel in the least like I'm plagiarizing when I echo some of the, some of the ideas that I know I first encountered in Martin Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount. I know there are a number of you who are readers, and so I ordered uh, several of these. They're back on the book table These are $25 each. There are actually two volumes in one, so you're getting two books for the price of $25. That's, I can't remember exactly what we paid for them, but that's that's about it without having to make change. So all of you who are in the elder training program, there's no need for you to buy one. Once I see how many we need after the church has bought all they want, I'll buy one to give, give to the elders in training and urge you that you would uh, read along in Lloyd-Jones as we make our way through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't planned it out ahead of time, but I wouldn't be surprised if it takes us most of the year to get through the Sermon on the Mount. Very, very important issues here. And so uh, may the Lord bless us and guide us and help it to be as influential in your life as it has been in mine. And uh, may the Lord again bless it to my, my refreshment and uh, commitment to, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we begin, I'm not going to, to take weeks and give you an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to pl- plunge right in. And uh, my intention is over the next seven weeks to give an exposition of one verse each week. So there are seven Beatitudes, and uh, so it's my intention to today go over blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, this would be a great time for you to memorize the Beatitudes. 
This is something that you could easily incorporate into your prayer life, uh, especially when it comes time for the confession of sin, that you could examine yourself in view of what you're about to learn about this description of the Christian character. And uh, if you're like I am, you will usually find ample matter for confession of sin as you contrast yourself with the, the warm, robust Christian character that Jesus describes here in the Sermon on the Mount. So, fairly easy to memorize the, uh, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then he describes a blessing upon those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Even though it starts with the same word, I think that that's a, a shift. This is, this is the kind of treatment that you're likely to get if you become this kind of character, the kind of character that is described in the Beatitudes. Why are they called the Beatitudes? Well, because in Latin, the word for blessed is very close to the word that we use for Beatitude. And so, it's just come over and we, we don't call these the, the seven blessed character characteristics. We just call them the Beatitudes. I count seven. Other people may count eight. But I put the eighth one in a different category. Now, as I've said already twice, this is a description of Christian character. This is what everyone who is a Christian ought to be like. Now, it's important that we understand that this is for everyone. This is not a description of a few super saints. I could put that in air quotes. This is for everyone. This is for the average, everyday Christian. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ ought to have this kind of character. Not only that, but everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ ought to manifest every one of these characteristics. So, it's not that you're supposed to be poor in spirit and maybe mournful, but then I'm meek and I'm hungry and thirsty after righteousness. And it's not like the giftings in the church. You know, in the, in the church, there are some people who function as mouths and there are some people who function as hands. Now, this is not to be divided up like that. Every one of us is to be poor in spirit. Every one of us is to be mournful. Every one of us is to be meek, and so on through the seven characteristics. So this is a description of that every Christian ought to aspire to, and every element of this description ought to be pursued. It ought to be pursued, but I've got good news for you. The seeds of every one of these characteristics is already planted in you. Because when you are born again, you are recreated in the image of Christ. You don't immediately look like Christ, but the, the essential building blocks of Christian character are implanted in you. And so you may not naturally be someone who is poor in spirit. You may naturally be pride, pr prideful. But the seed that grows into poverty of spirit is in you. 
You may not naturally be a, a sad, melancholy person, but the seeds of being a mournful person are planted in you. And in the last four or five sentences that I've spoken, I've been slightly misleading. Because the fact of the matter is, none of these qualities are natural to anyone. So that a person who has a, a, naturally, a natural tendency towards depression, or to look at things gloomily, that's different than the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. There are some people who are just kind of naturally go-with-the-flow kind of people, not going to stir the waters and make trouble. That's different than what Jesus calls meekness. The world might say that's a meek person, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, There are some people who are naturally merciful and compassionate and think about other people, and that's good. That's not the same thing that Jesus is talking about. So we'll see that Every one of these things is a, a result of the work of the Spirit of God in someone. So none of, them, none of them are natural to anyone. In fact, while on the surface it may look like the world admires several of these characteristics, so for example, who doesn't like a peacemaker? Who could possibly find fault with someone who is merciful? So on the surface, it may look like the world approves of each one of these character qualities, but as we see how they are described in the Bible, they end up making you the kind of person that the world would really like to crucify if they could get away with it. Of course, I'm pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ when I say that, because no one was more poor in spirit, or mournful, or meek, or hungry and thirsty after righteousness than Jesus. And of course, the way that we experience and express some of these character qualities is going to be severely modified by the fact that we were sinners and Jesus was not. But Jesus demonstrated this kind of a character quality. Who could be more merciful than Jesus? Who is more of a true true peacemaker than Jesus? (coughs) And yet those who witnessed his ministry said, we do not want this man to rule over us. And when they were presented with the question, what do you want me to do with Jesus of Nazareth? They said, crucify him. And so there's a certain degree of righteous living that will make you a decent neighbor and a good person to do business with. And the world likes that. But there's a further degree of righteousness that the world will not like. And when we, when we understand what Jesus is describing here, we will see that Jesus is describing a character that is drastically different than the character that is admired by the world. In fact, it's so different that Jesus, at the conclusion of the Beatitudes, will say, you're like salt. You're the salt of the earth. You're like salt on putrefying meat. You're drastically different. You're the preservative factor. You're as different from the world as light is from darkness. You're like a city that's been set on a hill. You're drastically different. John R.W. Stott wrote a book, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he called it Christian Counterculture. A good title. 
because he, he is maintaining what I believe to be the truth, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing a person in the Beatitudes and a way of thinking and living that is diametrically opposed to the way of thinking and living that is prescribed and admired by the world. And so, uh, here Jesus gives what to me, and I hope to you, is a very welcome description. Have you wondered in your heart, what kind of character is it that pleases God? I know that at the commencement of the, of the Christian life, I need to repent of my sin and receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord. But then what does that look like? What are the various aspects of my character that need to be shaped, influenced, and changed because of the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that that is an answer that is bubbling in your heart. And if so, then here's the good news. Jesus describes here for us the seven essential qualities of a Christian character. I don't think that this is an exhaustive list. I think that you should read a list like this together with the fruits of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. But this is a really good place to start. So let's get started. What, and, and here's the outline that I plan to follow for the next seven weeks. Number one, what does it mean to be fill in the blank? Poor in the Spirit today. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? That's today. Next week, what does it mean to be mournful? And then secondly, so what does it mean? Secondly, what are some biblical examples and some examples from church history and, and so on that would give us, help us to know what does this look like when it's put into practice? So first of all, what does it mean? Secondly, what are some examples? Thirdly, why are they blessed? And the answer to that question is given in each beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's the blessing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's the blessing. For they shall be comforted. And then finally, we'll end up seeking to answer the question, how can we become more like this? So the seeds of this are planted in us when we are recreated in the image of Christ, when we have the spirit of Jesus living in us. The seeds and the potential for this kind of character are, are planted in us. How can we cultivate and encourage those seeds to grow? How can I become more like this? So first of all, <clears throat> what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And let's, let's start with it does not mean this. So to be poor in spirit does not mean financially poor. Now you might say, why are you even mentioning that? Whoever even thought it meant that? Well, if you read Luke chapter 6, you'll see that this beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. He doesn't add the in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor. And there are some people who have <clears throat> mistakenly assumed, well, then what he's talking about is that, that financial poverty puts you in a position to be blessed. Well, it does, but it's not the financial poverty that does it. I mean, in the book of James, James says, uh, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. You're, he, he chides, James, James rebukes the people that he's writing to and says, you're showing favoritism to the rich. These are the ones who are having you hauled into court. And on the other hand, you're snubbing the poor when God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. 
And then coupled with that, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich. You have already received your reward. And then he says in another place, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. And so it's not a silly explanation for me to say here. What Jesus is talking about is not physical poverty. Now, what do I mean when I say that the physically poor are in a position to receive God's blessings? Uh, People who are rich have access to almost innumerable distractions. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He might have said the same thing about an extraordinarily handsome man. He might have said the same thing about a really beautiful woman. He might have said the same thing about someone who is extraordinarily intelligent. Because all of those blessings, good looks, intelligence, wealth, all of them bring with them some inevitable distractions that have to be guarded against. The poor, one usually, the poor don't have so many distractions as the rich do. And so uh, most, of the, most of the people who have peopled the kingdom of God throughout history have not come from the high and mighty. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many of you were wise, not many of you were Uh, came from high blood families, and I can't remember, I don't have that passage memorized, but the idea is not many of you came from these hoity-toity circumstances. Most of you came from from poor, uh, poor circumstances. But, But being poor in itself does not mean that you have got some kind of special path to get saved. There's not one way of salvation for rich people and another way of salvation for poor people. There's not one way of salvation for rulers and another way of salvation for those who are ruled. So Paul says, I urge that prayers, petitions be made for rulers and for all who are in authority. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. It's not like Hey, we're not going to pray for those those Gentile rulers. They're being mean to us. Paul says you ought to pray for them. Because Jesus didn't just die for poor Jews. Jesus didn't die just for poor Gentiles. He didn't die just for white people or just for black people. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all kinds of people. Rich and poor rulers and those who were ruled. So... I think it's important for us to first of all say when Jesus says blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he is not saying blessed are those who are financially destitute. Instead, it's important for us to know that he's saying poor in spirit. Well, I don't know if anybody in here has ever read David Copperfield. It's a really worthwhile book by Tale of Two Cities guy. Charles Dickens, yeah. So, David Copperfield, really good book. And in David Copperfield, there is a fella named Uriah Heep. Yeah, you old hippies thought that was just a rock and roll group, but they they got the group, they got the name for Uriah Heep after a character in David Copperfield. And And this guy, Uriah Heep, is... He's just always saying, well, you know, old Uriah, he doesn't know anything. And, of course, Uriah is... 
I think, he, I think he's always referring to himself in the third person, but he's always talking about how, how unworthy and how poor and, and unlikely he is and how everybody slights him, but he deserves it. And uh, that's not what it means to be poor in spirit. It's not to constantly be self-effacing and talking bad about yourself. I tend to agree with uh, the literary critic Samuel Johnson when he said, a man will criticize himself in public only insofar as he believes it will advance his reputation. There are very few exceptions to that. I've seen a couple, but very few. And so, now when Jesus says being poor in spirit, he doesn't mean that you're supposed to pretend like you're dumb if you're smart. He doesn't mean you're supposed to pretend like you're not a good athlete if you are a good athlete. He's not saying, not, he's not saying, just always be putting yourself down. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. Well, then what does it mean? I think that one of the most insightful comments on this is that what Jesus might have said here is, blessed are the beggars in spirit. Now, most of the beggars that we see standing at exit ramps look to me like they could work. But uh, if you travel in some third world countries, you'll see some beggars there that, man, those people need help. And it can be just very disconcerting to see some of the beggars that are at the street corners. These are not people who are trying to work the system. These are people who really need help. And so they're begging. They can't work, and so they're begging and Jesus says, when that's the condition that you are, in you are in spiritually, good. You are in a position to be blessed. You are in a position for God to approve of you and to give you the blessings that he bestows on people whom he approves. That would be my definition of blessed. Approved by God and then receive the good things that God gives to those whom he approves. Jesus says, blessed are those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God. You're, beggars, you're, you're a beggar in spirit. Let's think of some examples that we see in the Scripture. <clears throat> in fact, I'll have you turn to a couple of these. Turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And we'll see uh, the Apostle Paul describing all of the, all of the things that he might have considered that made him worthy to be treated specially by God. And he names them. It's a pretty impressive list. And then notice what he says about all of these wonderful things. So he says, I'll start right in the middle of Philippians 3 and verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now here comes his list. Here comes his pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not exactly sure why belonging to the tribe of Benjamin made him extra special, but the readers at Philippi knew. He's, he's, really, he's really ticking all the boxes on accomplishing a, a, work, a works righteousness. 
He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, both of those things uh, have become negative. Have they, they become pejorative in our eyes. But in the, first, in the first century, Pharisees were people who were really serious about keeping the law. And Paul says, I was so serious about it that I thought that the people who followed Jesus were members of a cult. And I was persecuting them. That's how earnest I was. I was serious. I was not playing games here. And then look at what he says next. But as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He became poor in spirit. All these, all these riches that he had, all this this religious righteousness that he had, he said, that's in the negative column. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In recent days, I've had communication with someone whose life has gone badly wrong. And in talking to this person, I said, there are some people who have to deliberately count all of their life as loss in order to come to Christ. God has already taken care of that for you. He stripped away all the things that you value. But now, come to Christ. You can come to Him. You don't have anything to offer. Well, that puts you just in the position that you ought to be in. Isaiah 55, the beginning verses say, Ho! Word of attention. Pay attention to me. All you who thirst, come to the waters. Come, buy Wine and milk without money and without cost. How am I going to buy it? Oh, this is kind of special thing. You buy it with your debt. You come without money, without cost. Why are you spending your life for things that won't satisfy you? Come to the waters and drink deeply. That, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. Here's the way that it's put in a song that we know and love, although we don't know this stanza very well. But Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, has this, has this stanza in it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, F-O-U-L, dirty, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's, that's poor in spirit. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or in that song that we started learning this morning, the final stanza says, A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness. I don't have any of my own. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. 
Everything that I need, I've got to come to you and beg you for it. Jesus says, you're a blessed person if you've come to that place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's the blessing that is promised. So now we're on point number three. So we've seen what does it mean to be poor in spirit. If you remember beggars in spirit, you have the gist of it. What are some examples? Well, that man in the temple that we read about who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's an example. The Apostle Paul's an example. People describing themselves as guilty, weak, and helpless worm, needing everything that they need from Jesus. That's examples. Now, why are they so blessed? Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may not have any kind of standing on earth. You may not have any kind of wealth on earth. But you're in the kingdom of heaven. You're in the kingdom of God. You're under the rule of God. He has taken you in. And now you are a beneficiary of all the blessings that he promises to those who are reconciled to him. And he will rule over you. And take care of you for now and forever. Your life on earth may be as miserable as it could possibly be. Family problems, financial problems, name it. But when you die, you're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God now. Even now. You know the fellowship of being under the dominion of the King of Kings. Even now you have the fellowship of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And He deigns to call us friends. Even now there are blessings of being in the kingdom of God. But one day, one day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and, and his, kingdom, his kingdom comes in all of its fullness and in all of its glory... Then what a reward the poor in spirit will have. You will be blessed forever in the kingdom of God. Now finally, how can we become more like this? I've said that the seeds are implanted in each one of us who is born again, but we need to cultivate those seeds and, and, see, and pursue them after a goal. I think that the, the most effective way of becoming increasingly poor in spirit is to see what a contrast there is between me, you speak for yourself, what a contrast there is between you and some of the holy men and women that we read about in the Bible. Or some of the holy men and women that you read about in the pages of history. I dare say that if you read the two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, you'll come away with an increased sense of your poverty of spirit. If you read a biography of George Whitfield or Charles Haddon Spurgeon or uh, John Payton, a missionary, or Adoniram Judson, and you see the way that those people lived day and night for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we look at ourselves and we think, Man, I don't even know if I'm saved. That shouldn't be the conclusion that you draw, but you should say, I, 
I certainly am not as poor in spirit. It's the, way I, it's the way I feel when I see someone who can really play the guitar. I don't even want to admit that I play. It's like, it's like I told you, when I was in high school, I thought I was a pretty good ping pong player until I entered a tournament where there were some people who could really play. And then I saw, man, I can't play. And uh, I've had, had that experience in many. Sometimes I just look at my own library, and I look at those 16 volumes that were written by John Owen. 16 volumes. I think, if I, if I started reading them right now, could I get them read before I die? And uh, then there are all these other books, and I think, well, I, I'm nothing in comparison to these guys. Yeah, I... I think that the reading of Christian biography is one of the most humbling experiences that, that we can undergo. I, 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 urge, I urge the practice upon you. If you want some recommendations, I'll give you some. But you don't have to open the pages of a, a Christian biography. Just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our goal. He's the one that we're supposed to be like. And then just day after day, how far short we fall of the way that Jesus lived and, of course, just being in the presence of God. I mean, really praying, really searching the Scriptures is just a, a daily reminder of the fact that we are beggars in spirit. And as we embrace that and feel the blessedness of it, then I think that there are, there are blessings that, uh, that accrue to us, that the Lord Lord showers down upon us because those who are poor in spirit are blessed even now. In conclusion, we are going to sing again that uh, hymn that we started learning today, How Sad Our State by Nature Is. It may require a little explanation, so while Jim, Bob, and Ruth Ann are coming. So in this hymn, the author, Isaac Watts, describes several things that make us really need the Lord. So in the first stanza, how sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And then here's another problem. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. That's a pretty, that's a pretty dour situation. By nature, we've got our sin, our minds are messed up. But here comes a hopeful stanza. But there's, a, but there's a voice of sovereign grace. Sounds from the sacred word. Ho, that word of, pay attention to me. Ho, ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. And so Isaac Watts describes in the next stanza how that my soul obeys. Can we get to the next slide, Cameron? My soul obeys the almighty call and runs to this relief. Is that all taken care of then? I still feel this poverty of spirit. I would believe thy promise, Lord. I want to believe this. I still feel my unbelief. So help my unbelief. Next slide, please. But here's what, here's what all of us have to do. To the dear fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Jesus is the incarnate God. The fountain of his blood is the salvation that is offered through us through Calvary. He says, here let me wash my spotted soul from crimes of deepest dye. So one of the problems that he identified in the first stanza was, our sin, how deep it stains. 
And now he says, but here's something that can wash it out. Let me wash my spotted soul from crimes of deepest dye. Now what about Satan? Next stanza, please. Yeah, there we go. Stretch out thine arm, victorious king. My reigning sins subdue. Drive the old dragon from his seat with all his hellish crew. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are a king. Flex your muscles. Get rid of this, this pestiferous host of evil beings that is tormenting me. Drive him out. And then the final stanza. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm. On my kind arms I fall. That's poverty of spirit right there. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. If you ever read the biography of William Carey, it'll make you feel like you're not even a Christian. Translated the Bible into so many languages, lived his life carrying the gospel to India, died there. What a man! What a man, we think. But do you know what William Carey had put on his tombstone? A guilty, weak, and helpless worm. <laughs> on my kind arms I fall. Not, here lies William Carey, translated Bible into 39 languages. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm. He knew the blessedness of being poor in spirit. 